Well, good morning, everyone. Glad to have you here with us in the room. Also, want to say hello to those of you who are joining us online from wherever you happen to be. Good morning and happy Father's Day to you as well. Listen, this is a really important message, uh, I think, uh, for our church. I, I, I think all our talks and the things we do here matter and are important. But this one's got a little extra significance because if I'm any kind of communicator, Uh, In about 35 minutes or so uh, from now, you're going to know exactly what we're about as a church. You're going to know what matters and and why we exist. And so this is one of those kind of foundational uh, messages. Just for a second, though, let me bring a couple other information items to your attention. First, this is my last opportunity to remind you and invite you to come to our congregational meeting tomorrow night. We're having that meeting at 7 o'clock right here in the South Atrium. We're going to present next year's ministry plan for you, a little bit of a summary of next year's plans and, and all of that goes with it. We're going to present our budget for the 24 ministry year that our staff and our elders have prepared. We're going to ask for our members uh, to affirm that budget. So listen, this meeting is uh, open to anybody. Only members can vote, but we will definitely be willing to uh, answer or give our best answers to any questions you have. So it's a lot of fun, generally speaking, uh, to come to these meetings. So tomorrow night at 7, you're all welcome to come and be part of that. The documents, if you'd like to do a little advanced reading, are all on our website. Just look for the congregational meeting tab on the homepage. Want to also mention the importance of giving here at Sherwood Park Alliance. We are a registered charity, which means that 100% of all of our ministry activity happens because of the generosity of our people. So that means our kids, our youth, our adult, our care initiatives, our facilities, this campus, school and church, the one across the road over there, our salaries, everything, including mine, all come from these gifts. But I'm a contributor as well. I'm a member. I give Karina and I give weekly here at our church. We're all in this together. So if this is your church home, I would simply ask that you consider uh, partnering in this way, being part of what God is doing here through your generosity by making Sherwood Park Alliance perhaps your favorite charity. There's a number of ways that we give. We do that mostly these days on our giving page of our home site. Uh, homepage, you can set up reoccurring giving there. Uh, if you'd like to, debit or credit, you can give by text. You can also go to the atrium kiosks in the lobby uh, when you're here in pres- uh, person, and we can process debit and credit gifts as well during the week. And if you happen to land on our giving page in the next few days, you may notice a unique option that's there. You're going to see something that's there temporarily called Jeremy Cook Love Offering. So Jeremy was one of those two characters in the video at the beginning. He's one of our executive team members, one of our senior associate pastors. Jeremy has also been a teaching pastor with us most of the time he's been on our staff for almost 14 years, but he's on the way out. Uh, Jeremy and Heather and their kids are Saskatchewan bound. Jeremy is taking on a new challenge as an assistant superintendent, assistant district superintendent out there. So this week is Jeremy's last week on the team and next weekend is his last message for us as a church. So I hope you come and support him, encourage him, bless him and say your goodbyes. And one of our traditions as a church is that when our pastors, uh, when they leave, Uh, we tend to bless them with a gift, a financial gift. And so if you'd like to contribute to that gift, you can do that on our homepage or giving page right now. Uh, If you happen to do that at the kiosks in the lobby, just really clearly mark on there, handwrite on your receipt, Cook or Jeremy Cook Love Offering, and we'll make sure that gets to him. That option will be available to you until July 2nd. 
All right, I'd like to start this message with a dog story because I have been unfairly described by some, especially those who love me, as not a dog person, somebody who doesn't like dogs. That is absolutely not true. I like dogs. I just like other people's dogs. I don't want to own a dog. Um, I'm not a big fan of the uh, messes and the scratches and the hassle and the expense and the shedding and having to pick up the little treats that you know, end up on the lawn, especially when you see that melt in, in March and April. I'm just not a big fan of all of that stuff, but I like dogs. I like other people's dogs. I just don't want the responsibility of having to have a dog. That's been my posture my whole adult life. I've been accurately described as a little bit of a suck, though. And what I mean by that is, is the women in my life, especially my, my daughter and my wife, they kind of have me wrapped around their fingers. And so when we moved here, my wife and daughter, who are dog lovers, badgered me into submission. They just relentlessly... Uh, pressured me into getting a puppy. We got to have a puppy. This is just part of being a kid. And so my daughter at the time was about 10. Uh, they convinced me that, okay, I gave in. I relented. I said, all right, we will do this lifestyle change. And so a few months later, breeders and all of that and selections, little Tucker arrived. This little puppy Tucker arrived and took up residence in our house. Now, uh, Tucker was with us for about 10 years, a little bit more than 10 years. And it was our intent when we adopted him that he was to be our daughter's dog. He was supposed to sleep in her room. She was to do the bulk of the caregiving. And while our dog Tucker was definitely in love with Karis and was devoted to her, uh, dog people know this. Dog people know that puppies especially are impressionable in that early socialization period, those first six months. In that time period, puppies will form a unique bond with whomever plays with them the most and feeds them the most and looks after them and cares for them the most. And that was Corrine. That was my wife, Corrine. Corrine was the one who slept on the couch next to his crate when we first brought him home and he would cry, you know, during the night. She was the one who started feeding him first in the morning. I was the one who picked up his poop, but that did nothing for him. <laughs> he, he couldn't care about me a bit. Um, for his entire existence, Tucker was locked in on Kareem. No matter where she would go in the house, he would follow her. When she was gone, when she'd leave, he would lay in that little mud room between the garage and, you know, by the utility room there, and he would lay on his little dog bed there, just looking at the door, waiting for her to come back. And when he heard the garage door open and engage, he would jump up and he would start wagging his tail in this anticipation of her walking through that door. So imagine his disappointment when it was me. Uh, I would walk in and I, I, he couldn't speak, but if he could, he would say, oh, it's you. Like, he wanted nothing to do with me. There was always somebody he was waiting for, and that was Kareem. He was 100% focused on her. He organized his entire existence around her. Here's the point of the story. The way dogs live is not that different from us. What I'm actually describing right now is the nature of life. We all organize our lives around something, a person, a value, a goal, or an object. There's always something that is of first importance to us. There's always something that's the primary object of our affection. 
And when we describe this reality in a church setting, we will often use a word like worship. Whatever we organize our lives around, whatever is central is what we worship, even if we don't use the word worship to describe it. During the pandemic, I read something by a pastor named Matt Stephen, and he quoted a novelist and professor of English and creative writing named David Foster Wallace. Wallace says something interesting about being human in his book, This is Water. This is what Wallace says. He says, here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The choice we have is what we worship. The choice we have is what we worship. Now, something you should know about Wallace is, as far as I know, he's not a person of faith. But here he is expressing this reality that everybody worships. The choice that we have is what we worship. So I'll come back to this in a minute, but I want to give you one more time the backstory to this message, the backstory to this series. If you've missed anything in the last couple of weeks, I would urge you to go back and check out what you might have missed. Our goal here for three weekends has been to describe and then biblically defend the new short and easy to remember statement of purpose for our church, and it's right there behind me, belong and become. Now, it might seem simple, but I assure you, it is not simple. It's quite loaded. But it is what our core leaders have landed on after months and weeks of prayers and deliberation. Typically, organizations, churches have mission statements and vision statements. Uh, Purpose is similar to that. All are designed to address the why. Why are we here? Why do we exist as a church? What's our goal? What's the point? What matters most? What do we value? Who are we? And who or whom do we worship? And we've reached the conclusion that we think most of those questions can be answered with these three words, five syllables, belong and become. The ampersand is not a word, but belong and become. And by the way, one more time, belonging matters. It matters a lot, but becoming is the ultimate goal. If all we do is create welcoming environments, that's great, but that doesn't make us a church. That makes us a club. I'm quite confident that the church Jesus had in mind is a place where people become something. And the and ties it all together. The and is essential. We belong here to a community where we long to be increasingly a group of people who are belonging and becoming. Now, in week one, uh, we talked about the essential nature of that and in a little bit more detail. Brody did that for us. And then last weekend, I did some work on the nature of belonging, which leaves me one more weekend to talk a little bit more about what we're striving to become. So here it is. Our purpose as an organization, our purpose as a church is that everyone who participates in this community becomes a deeply rooted follower of Jesus. That's it. We're a Jesus church. We want to be known as people who have organized their lives around Jesus. We follow him. He's central. He's the cornerstone. Remember, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we really have is what or whom we worship. And around here, we choose Jesus. He's the object of our worship. 
Now, this message and the other two in this series are likely going to live on our website for a long time. They'll be on YouTube for a long time. We'll be doing additional summary documents. We'll likely be creating some other video shorts and repackaging all of this stuff. And it could be that you're watching right now, maybe months from now, years from now, in fact, Maybe a friend forwarded you this link and you're watching now, you're trying to decide whether this is the church that you may choose to align with, whether or not you wanna be part of this family. So what I wanna do for a few more minutes is talk about what it looks like to engage. And further, I wanna challenge you to take a becoming step. I wanna challenge all of you to take a, just one more becoming step today. I'm not gonna stretch the dog story any further than I should, but listen, following Jesus is a little bit like a puppy orienting their life around the person they love most. If you're a person committed to becoming a deeply rooted follower of Jesus, you have to make some deliberate choices to orient your existence around him. And I wanna show you a couple of places in the scripture where we see examples of this because the Bible invites us into exactly what I'm describing in all kinds of places and in all kinds of ways. It repeats this over and over, this invitation to orient your life around the person of Jesus. Here's an example from Hebrews chapter 12. Let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. I've always loved that line, fix your eyes, fix your eyes on Jesus. If um, you would take a motorcycle riding course, a safety course, one of the big points of emphasis in those courses is where to put your eyes, where to fix your eyes. Uh, motorcycle riders are taught to look ahead at a distance, not to fixate on what's right in front of them, what's directly under the forks because fixing your eyes out there on what's ahead matters for a number of reasons. One, it's a safety thing. You have to be able to see what's coming. You have to position yourself so other people can see you. But also, the way motorcycles work, the way the body works and two wheels and the upright thing and the balance and everything, where your rider, riding coaches teach us, where your eyes are focused is where the bike will go. It just, that's the way it works. You, you, it just follows where your eyes are looking. And that's what I think about sometimes when I think about what it means to fix my eyes on Jesus because where my eyes are fixed is where I'm most likely to go. Jesus himself said, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. Multiple places in the Gospels, uh, the Gospel writers describe how Jesus would just simply say to people, follow me, follow me, remain in me. And the Apostle Paul writes similar things in his letters. Here's an example from Colossians. He says, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So listen, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the loudest and clearest message of the Bible is to orient your life around Jesus. Follow him wherever his teaching leads you. Follow him no matter the obstacle. Follow him no matter the circumstance. Follow him like a dog who's locked in on their favorite person. So for a few more minutes now, I want to make sure there's no ambiguity here. Uh, I want to do a quick review of the basics on Jesus. We're going to do a little, uh, call this Jesus 101. If this was a short course, this is the basics, the essence of who Jesus is. 
follow me for a minute here. Before he's even born, his mom, Mary, is told by God to name him Jesus. Now, in the ancient world, when names are given, they're not given so much because of, you know, good associations or preferences or the way it sort of links up with a surname and rolls off the tongue, that sort of thing. There's almost always deep meaning attached to names. And one way to translate the name of Jesus from the original language into English is, he will save his people from their sins. That's a quite a literal translation. And Mary is also instructed to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. So putting those two together, Jesus is divine. Jesus is God who saves us from our sins. The gospel writer John puts it more poetically, roughly translated from the original Greek. John says, the promises of God became a human being and resided among us. The Bible's answer to the question, who is Jesus, is on one hand, kind of simple, on the other, incredibly loaded and complex and almost unimaginable. Jesus is God, who became a human being, later crucified by the empire which considered him a threat, but resurrected by the power of God and remains uniquely present with us in power and truth. And it's the resurrection of Jesus that matters an awful lot. It's the beginning of God doing his repair work in our world. One of the primary ways that God is carrying out his repair work and his redemptive work is through the church he's created. And so his intent is that his church becomes a diverse family who looks out for each other, who makes the world better, and takes his teaching seriously. With the promise being that one day he will wipe every tear from our eyes and renew all things. That's Jesus. That's what he's up to. That's who Jesus is. Now listen, I recognize that these kind of claims are met by a certain segment of our community, maybe even some of you with some skepticism. You may not be buying what I'm selling here. I want you to know if that's you, or you love somebody, that, that's their reality. Listen, that's fine. That's okay. You belong. If, if you're doubting and uncertain about any of this, you still belong here. Doubting is very, very common. It's a very common reaction to these kind of claims. In fact, the gospel writer Matthew describes how after Jesus is resurrected and appears to some of his disciples, you know, after the shock wears off, they immediately start to worship him. They orient their lives around him all the more. They get more devoted and they have more conviction. But some, some still doubt, and that's preserved for us. This is from John's gospel. Now, Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, hey, we've seen the Lord, he's alive. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, not buying it, not believing it, don't see it. Don't be critical of Thomas. In fact, I actually really like how this is preserved for us. I like how the confusion and the doubt of one of Jesus' closest friends is presented to us in this way, because we all have a little Thomas in us. And then I also love how gracious Jesus is, how he graciously and lovingly shows up for Thomas, just for him. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, looked him in the eye and says, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side. Now stop doubting and believe. 
And Thomas said to him, of course he did, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus said this powerful couple of sentences, because you have seen me, you've believed. But oh, how blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. In the same way, based on personal experience and the testimony of countless others and the evidence that we have in the scriptures, Jesus remains gracious and loving toward you even in your doubts. The journey toward becoming a deeply rooted follower of Jesus will almost certainly include seasons, including long seasons of doubt and confusion. But here's the cool thing. Even our doubts can be oriented around Jesus. Our doubts can be made to help us worship him. And while we're on the subject of Jesus, which seems appropriate, <laughs> listen, a lot of even secular scholars, even those who are anti-faith, see some compelling evidence in the historical record about the influence of Jesus. And sometimes they struggle to really understand and comprehend and explain the actions of the early disciples, the early Christians, and its church. Yes, it's definitely Christian historians who argue that the best and most logical explanation uh, for what happened in history and the whole impact on the Roman Empire and all that is because Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be and that he really did resurrect from the dead. It may, though, it may really be the best explanation for how this small band of nobodies is able to impact the Roman Empire and how this message continues to spread to every nation on earth, every language, and is still alive and well and spreading and changing lives today. That may be the best explanation is Jesus is who he claimed to be and he was resurrected. Listen, there's good evidence for believing in the resurrection of Jesus. And by the way, if the disciples made it up, you'd think they'd make themselves look better in the process because they really look silly a lot of the time. Like they, they don't exactly look like spiritual giants. They're pretty humble. They're pretty ordinary. Um, and in some examples, they actually look like buffoons. They look silly. Study them. You'll like them because you'll see yourself. And I see a lot of myself in these guys. At Sherwood Park Alliance and many other churches a lot like us, we believe that Jesus is resurrected and alive. But the inclusion of the doubt of Thomas shows us that one step we can take toward becoming is by growing in our belief and our understanding, by orienting our lives around him, by interacting with him, by studying his teaching and his ways. The early disciples moved past their doubt, well past their doubt, by continually rehashing his words and interacting with him as a living, resurrected Lord. Which means, which means, the attitudes and the actions of the biblical uh, disciples, they can still inspire us today. See, their primary method for becoming was ongoing engagement with the resurrected Jesus, repeat encounters with the resurrected Christ. And so maybe a place for you to start, if, if you haven't, if you haven't done anything like this, or maybe not for a long time, is just to make an ask of him. A tangible way to begin to more fully orient your life around Jesus is to start talking to him. Try saying something to him like this. Jesus, I'm, I'm thinking about what it means to orient my life around you, to take your words and your teaching seriously. But listen, I, I'm having some issues with doubt. Would you speak to me? Would you reveal yourself to me? It took constant interactions with the first disciples and, and Jesus 
to help them believe and become the kind of kingdom-oriented difference makers they became. But it was a process for sure. Becoming a deeply rooted follower of Jesus means constant interaction with him like a puppy fixated on that most important person. So I'm inviting you. I'm urging you even as a means of becoming to organize your life around continual interaction with him, to arrange your schedule toward ongoing connection with Jesus. And if you're even just a little bit inspired to do this, I'm gonna suggest three more ways that you can do this. Three ways that you can orient your life around Jesus because that's what we're about and that's how pastors talk. So here we go. The first one is, is hopefully not something that you're gonna push back on, but the first one is to commit to an environment like this, to commit to the gathering, to prioritize the gathered church like we are today. Now listen, it's still spring. Like summer's not even here officially until middle of this week. And here in Alberta, summers are short, they're beautiful but short, and winters are long and sometimes difficult. And I say this probably at least 50% of the time over the years, I hope, I say, this, I say this a lot, so I'll say it again. I hope you get rest this summer. I hope you get rejuvenation. I hope you get outside and you get your hands in some dirt and swim and splash and play and recreate and camp. If you wanna be dirty, uncomfortable and cold, go camp. Um, but you should, you should recreate in the summer. But when you are in town, and when you can be here, try to be here. We'll be here all summer. We'll be here Saturdays at 7 and Sundays at 10. We have some inspired worship moments planned for the summer. We've got a really fun teaching series I think you'll enjoy. So if you can, participate as much as you're able. And then in the fall, as our new normal continues to unfold, please make the gathering, make corporate worship and teaching and connection one of your priorities. Now, there's concrete reasons why I can give you uh, for why I think this matters, but today, I, I just want to remind you of an intangible. One of the more compelling teachings of Jesus is that there is a transformative power in the gathering. Uh, I don't have this verse uh, on screen for you, but it's real simple. It's from Matthew 18, and it's just that line where Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, there I am with them. Uh, I taught that text a few months ago, and in that message, I talked a little bit about how not to interpret and apply that passage. It's, it's not Jesus saying that you need two or three people present together in order for the presence of God to be there, that, like a quorum. That's not the teaching here. It is, though, Jesus' way of saying something powerful, something transformative, something forming and shaping takes place when believers and seekers come together for worship and teaching and friendship and mutual edification. So do you have to go to church to be a Christian? No, that would be legalism. Will you become a deeply rooted follower of Jesus without engaging in regular worship gatherings and groups and all that goes on in environments like this? Not as likely. Prioritizing the gathering, even virtually, is a way to orient your life around Jesus. And of course, let me say this really, really clear. The presence of Jesus is not restricted to environments like this, but his presence is more apt to be experienced in environments like this and to be expressed in environments like this. Jesus is here, which is why here is where we should be. That's one. 
Another potential becoming step, or maybe I will say on this one, a pretty essential becoming step is that we would engage with time-tested spiritual practices. In this series, we've talked a couple of times about how we want to, you know, we wanted to update our mission, vision, and values. We wanted to make this next era uh, wrapped around something concise and easy to remember. And so we wanted to not get so chatty, and we landed on three kind of P's, purpose, belong and become, priorities, which we'll talk about a little bit more tomorrow night at our meeting, and then practices, purpose, priorities, and practices. And on the practice front, there's a lot more to come over the course of the rest of the year, but I'm convinced, and our leadership core is convinced, that certain essential practices are just the way becoming happens. They're not the measures of whether becoming has occurred, but they oftentimes are the means for becoming. And so what we're planning to do starting this fall is to place some extra weight of emphasis on one spiritual practice at a time. We're gonna teach one, develop some resources for engaging with it by yourself, as families, couples, kids, whomever, groups, we'll engage one spiritual practice at a time for a few weeks in the fall, and then we'll do a second one in the winter, and we'll have sort of a, an anchor teaching series about all of that. So we've got 10 spiritual practices selected and kind of loaded up, and we're gonna, again, roll these out one at a time. In a way, I might be previewing the next five years, because if we were to do two a year, and there's 10, obviously that would take 10 years. And again, we'll kind of lay these out a little bit more later, but I just want to let you know now that the one we're going to begin with in September is Sabbath, Sabbath and Sabbath keeping. At the busiest time of year for a lot of us, September, we're going to emphasize the Sabbath rest of Jesus. I think it'll land well. So that's what's coming. But you don't have to wait until fall to engage in spiritual practices like Sabbath keeping or scripture meditation or prayer or simplicity or generosity, hospitality, fasting services, a whole lot more to come. But again, these are the means. These are the means of becoming. So I would just urge you one more time to think this through. Pick one at a time. Study it. Read about it. Think about it. Come up with some ideas to engage with it. And then practice it. And by the way, if there's any part of you that's skeptical about this stuff as well, if you're wondering what the personal ROI is on this sort of activity, your return on investment, that's a fair, it's a fair thought, it's a fair question. You should think about uh, what is in it for you if you to do this. So I'll show you what the ROI is. According to the scriptures, the fruit of orienting your life around Jesus is a massive change in character. That's the fruit. The characteristics that God wishes to produce in you and me are as follows. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Right there. That is God's great hope for your life, no matter who you are. It is that you grow into the kind of person who is known for love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit are the characteristics of Jesus' character. This is what he's like. So as you orient more of your life around him, and I do this as well, we slowly become more like him. And this is why the Bible says stuff like, take off the old self and, and put it aside and, and put on the new self. 
the new self are these Jesus-centered traits. So one last suggestion for becoming, a good becoming step might even be to memorize this list. It's going to disappear in just a second, but you can find it yourself later on. It's Galatians 5, starting at verse 22. Check it out. Okay. My time is up, and I'm going to wrap this up and send you out into your day. So that really is it for us. Belong. Belong. You absolutely belong here, all of you, no matter who you are. And I'm asking all of you who belong to help others feel that same sense of belonging, including those who are not yet here and including those who are here and who are struggling to experience this offer of a family that is really at the core of of God's intent for his church. Remember, we all have a part to play in the hospitality side of the equation. And then there's the and. Don't forget the and. Everything hinges on the and. Don't stop with belong. The and matters. And become. Take some deliberate steps toward becoming a deeply rooted follower of Jesus. I'm going to wrap this up in prayer briefly. But before I do, I'm going to do what I do sometimes, which is give you a moment to think about your own response to this. Maybe you've never told Jesus that you intend to follow him. Or maybe it's not a sentiment you've expressed in a long time. And if it feels like something you ought to say to him, I want to give you just a few moments to invite Jesus to be large and in charge for you. Ask Jesus to help you make him the primary object of your worship. Do that in your own words, in your own way. Express your intention and ask for his help in orienting your life after his. I'll give you a few moments and then I'll close in prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, we offer you all the dimensions of our lives, the good, the bad, the ugly, the messy, the doubts, the confusions, the victories, the pain, all of our struggles, all of our highs, all of our lows. Help us orient all of it around you. Teach us to follow you, Jesus. Teach us what it means. Give us strength to do it and help us define our lives by your character. We put you in the center of our lives and in the center of this, your church. We pray together in your name, Jesus, our cornerstone, amen. Hey, everybody, again, thank you for sharing some of your Father's Day with each other, and I hope you have a great day and encourage each other as you go. If you'd like to talk or pray together, some of our pastoral team will be down here. God bless you. Have a good day.